Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks for coming along to our second uh, GII research seminar for this year. It's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Andrew DeWitt. Andrew is a professor in the School of Policy Studies at Rikkyo University, uh, Tokyo, and the current director of the Rikkyo Institute of Economics. Andrew is, in fact, a political scientist by training, which I was interested to read. And Andrew's specialist areas are political, political economy of energy policy and public, uh, under fu- public finance. Andrew served as an advisor of the Fukuoka uh, City Tax Commission, a, fis- a fiscal and governance specialist at the OECD Director for Public Governance and Territorial Development. And Andrew continues to advise the Tsushima City Commission on the promotion of gender equity. Andrew's most recent work uh, includes uh, Mission Impossible, Refurbishing Japan's Post-War State, uh, Glenn Hook, who of course is well known, uh, Jap- uh, Japan, uh, Japan scholar, uh, and Takada Hiroko, uh, their book, uh, Ending the Post War in Japan Structure, Actors, Norms, and Challenges. And Andrew uh, is going to talk to us today uh, about Japan's power elites and the political economy of the feed in tariff. So, Andrew. Okay, well, thank you very much for. Uh, and uh, thank you for uh, having me here and for coming to uh, to hear a, a talk on the feed-in tariff, which is not exactly the <laughs> most attractive um, subject. In fact, the Americans are trying to change the name. It's a little bit too geeky. So uh, the, the Americans are renaming it to uh, what's called clean contract um, because feed-in tariff is too geeky. That appears to be one reason why. It has not um, become uh, an everyday topic of uh, conversation. Anyway, um, as this uh, overview slide uh, shows, I I want to talk about the uh, feed-in tariff, or FIT. I'll call it FIT from now on. In Japan, in the process, I'll examine what I think are the uh, FIT's uh, broader implications. I want to argue, I hope persuasively, that the uh, central issue we all confront is how we shift the energy economy. It's the biggest and perhaps uh, most politically powerful part of the economy, both here and elsewhere. I think the FIT is uh, key to any effort for making that transition to uh, sustainability. So let me uh, first define the FIT. The FIT is a direct monetary assistance. You have one here in Queensland. It's a very hobbled, uh, constricted form. But anyway, the FIT is a direct monetary assistance from electricity consumers to renewable uh, power producers for the additional cost of renewable power. The tariff works by guaranteeing renewable power producers, such as households, farmers, co-ops, local communities, large firms, etc., access to the electricity grid. It then guarantees them extra money per kilowatt uh, hour over and above the level that uh, conventional baseload power such as coal-fired power, uh, earns per kilowatt hour. It's like a subsidy. A lot of people don't like you to use the word subsidy when it comes to FIT. But Anyway, this increment for the FIT is an administratively determined rate that takes into account the extra production costs of renewable technologies and also provides a moderate level of profit. The cost of this support is then added to the monthly electric bill. In Germany... It's going to be hard to read. Sorry, I didn't realize it would. Uh, but anyway, don't try to read it at all. <laughs> uh, 
In Germany, where renewables now provide about 17% of their electricity, all I want to show you with this slide is that uh, the major financial groups, this is a Deutsche Bank uh, appraisal, uh, very lauding appraisal of the FIT in Germany. Um, in Germany, where renewables now provide about 17% of their electricity, the FIT costs German households about three marks per month. That's about the price of a loaf of bread. The FIT essentially guarantees the renewable producer a stable market and a stable price for the product. The FIT allows the renewable producer to avoid having to compete with generally lower cost, but not always lower cost, uh, and much dirtier, certainly always dirtier, uh, conventional power sources. This temporary assistance to renewable energy production is designed to, and in fact does, lead to price declines per kilowatt hour for renewable energy sources. At some point, a point called grid parity, electricity grid parity, and a point that of course differs with the given renewable technology, for example wind in some places already is at grid parity, whereas solar and wave are yet uh, to uh, even get near there. Uh, at some point, the fit will no longer be necessary to guarantee the market and the price. Let me see if I've got my slides here. Um, there are many reasons the fit has been adopted by 85 national and subnational jurisdictions. One of them is the desire to foster low or no carbon renewables in the face of climate change. Everyone here knows a, a great deal about the scale of the climate crisis, one of the main drivers for our energy transition. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, but I've read of considerable debate within Australia about whether the floods here in Brisbane and so on were exacerbated by climate change. The day before yesterday when I arrived, the coal lobby and its allies in the media were busy chewing up the Gillard government um, for her proposal to adopt a carbon tax from July of uh, 2012, I think. They must be angry about having ha had to spend so much money in getting rid of Rudd and just to have <laughs> in its place. They and the other carbon-intensive industries say Gillard broke her promise. She agrees and responds that because things have changed since the last election, it's a choice between taking on climate change and doing nothing. Certainly, I have um, nothing useful to say about Gillard's decision, nor can I advance or refute any arguments on climate change itself. Um, but to me, it's of considerable academic interest and, and personal concern um, that the observed pace of polar melting, uh, glacial retreat, melting of permafrost, release of methane from subsea and other clathrates, and so on, appear to be far ahead of predictions by models used by the IPCC and other agencies. The US National Snow and Ice Data Center tells us in a March 2 release that the North Pole's ice extent is anomalously low, and that this winter, air temperatures over most of the Arctic Ocean were between two and four degrees Celsius higher than normal. Over the East Greenland Sea and north towards the pole, air temperatures were five to seven degrees Celsius higher than normal. Colder conditions 
two to six degrees Celsius below average persisted over Western Eurasia, East Central Eurasia, and some of the Canadian Arctic. All this appears to have brought climate weirding to the Northern Hemisphere. As you can see, you have a um, high pressure uh, system uh, developing um, over the ice-free Arctic, and it allows the, this is one hypothesis. Um, it allows these uh, uh, movements of cold air masses, or facilitates these movements of cold air masses down to places like uh, the United States, where you get snow in, uh, in cold temperatures. And people say, "Well, but it, the climate's not changing. You know, it's not. It's, it's getting colder, not warming up." Anyway. All this appears to have brought climate weirding to the northern hemisphere. Within 15 to 20 years, this Arctic warming is expected to thaw so much of the permafrost and its immense quantities of cold stored carbon that we find ourselves in the midst of a runaway release of CO2 and methane emissions. This is 15 to 20 years. Um, and as you here in Australia well know, because you're so close to the Great Barrier Reef, the acidification of the oceans the bleaching of coral, rates of species extinction and related phenomena are worsening faster, in many cases much faster, than projected even a few years ago. Oceanic phytoplankton, the basis of marine life, has perhaps declined by 40% over the past century, and especially since mid-century. And those are just a few uh, examples from the steady reign of very disturbing observ observations from the field. I'm, I'm sure that you know if we just sat and talked for two minutes, tell me lots of things I haven't heard. The point is that the environmental crisis that we continue to describe as one we need to rescue our children or grandchildren from looks to be underway and accelerating in the here and now. And it appears to be delivering significant shocks to the global political economy. That is, if the climate weirding arguments are correct, then at least some of the problem with food prices and supplies and their link to political instability are due to the initial hits from profound and accelerating climate change. If so, dealing with the apparent drivers of climate change is in almost all case, cases to our collective benefit. This is true even if the current pace of climate change is, for whatever reasons, exaggerated by temporary anomalies. Less devastation of forests, less composite, consumption of resource-intensive goods, and so forth, have merits quite apart from reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We all know that to be true, but it seems especially true and urgent now because we appear to be running into various resource constraints that are worrisome in their geopolitical implications. The most profound constraints, of course, are centered on the energy front. Of course, the food specialists would give you an argument about that, um, which is where I want to focus. Um, we rely on fossil fuels for about 86% of primary energy supply. Uh, of that, oil composes the largest share at 26.8%, coal at 26.6%, probably a bit higher down here, <laughs> and natural gas at 22.9%. Consumption of fossil fuels is responsible for about 60% of our greenhouse gas emissions at present. So on that score alone, there is merit in reducing our reliance on them. But scarcity problems are also looming. Certainly the gas and oil industry declare that we have a new energy revolution, 
A century or more of new supply in natural gas production through hydraulic fracturing or fracking. And Greg tells me that there's, a, there's quite a bit of a controversy down here as well. Um, but there are good reasons to believe that the potentially economically recoverable resources are exaggerated and costs understated, especially the environmental costs. It would appear that supplies of coal are also more limited than is generally thought and that their development costs may be higher than most people confidently predict. This is a new part of a new survey by the USGS about American coal supplies and they were quite surprised to <laughs> discover this um, about the Powder River Basin, where, as you can see, 37% of U.S. 2006 production comes from. Um, it's not like we're at peak coal. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's getting more expensive. I think electricity prices here have climbed by about, you said, 30% over? Something like that? Well, anyway. Um, and the externalities of these fossil fuels are extraordinarily high, even if we disregard their contribution to climate change. But the big deal right now is, of course, oil. Specialists in oil markets and the political economy of the industry have long debated when there would be a peak in oil production, followed by a protracted decline. The International Energy Agency has long fudged about a peak in oil production. And no wonder. The agency is largely staffed by people connected to the fossil fuel industry, and it receives its funding in large measure from countries like the United States that would not want to hear speculation about a peak in oil production. It's not a conspiracy thing, it's just these people's networks, right? Another reason appears to be simple overconfidence in the data on assessed reserves, as well as believing the Middle East and other OPEC producers almost certainly inflated assessments of their own reserves. We had a weekly, the WikiLeak about that a few weeks ago. Go and look at it. It's interesting. We know from the finance crisis how easily regulators can be bought or bamboozled by vested interests. And we also know that vested interests are often, in turn, captives of their own wishful thinking. Keep that in mind. In any event, in last year's annual World Energy uh, outlook report, the IEA essentially conceded that a peak in oil in conventional oil production had been reached in 2006. That doesn't mean we're running out of oil. There's plenty of unconventional oil available in the Canadian and Venezuelan tar sands and other deposits. There's also a great deal remaining to be found in the Arctic region, where the ice is conveniently melting. There may also be significant deposits under very thick and deep layers of salt beneath the ocean floor off the coast of Brazil and in other areas. We're not running out of oil, but conventional and low-cost oil production has peaked. For example, exploiting the Brazilian reserves under all that. You're talking about 10 kilometers down. <laughs> it's just unimaginable prices. So we were already in a regime of rising per-barrel prices before Arabian and uh, North African civil society was suddenly born a couple of months ago. The fact that about 60% of remaining conventional reserves are concentrated in the Middle East has always been of great concern, of course. It's also brought wars and other tragic political externalities. 
But now this political instability threatens to constrain supplies in the short run through potential damage to existing installations as well as retarding investment in new discovery and exploitation. And it threatens ongoing and future production levels and prices because these Middle Eastern regimes now have very strong incentives to look for additional revenues in order to placate their populations as well as afford job opportunities to very high proportions of young people. Have a look at the demographics and surprise you for the Middle Eastern countries. Um, this revolutionary development has finally been added to what was already a very long list of geopolitical worries about oil resources and their concentration in the Middle East. So now we have a whole set, a new set of reasons to act fast and achieve the escape from oil that is even the chosen motto of the chief economist of the International Energy Agency. He's actually a very smart person, very, very astute, uh, Fatty Burrell, and has been warning about peak oil off the record for a number of years. There's been a debate for a number of years within the IEA, and evidence of that leaked out several years ago. It was hastily denied, etc., etc., but um, now it's uh, very clear. Indeed, one of the biggest threats from Saudi Arabia is that they use so much of their oil to produce electricity for their domestic market, threatening to put a huge crimp in available supplies for export. The Saudis generate seven, uh, pardon me, 65% of their electricity with oil and are facing about 10% annual rates of increase in power demand. This is one very, very grave issue when viewed in tandem with the pressures to democratize and diversify the economy. The more democratization and diversity, the greater the demand for electricity and fuel for domestic business and consumer consumption. When it comes to the Saudis, keep this in mind, we have no substitute swing producer of oil waiting in the wings. Well, unless you get the Brazilian stuff under all that 10 kilometers of sea and salt and so forth. Even before this current upsurge in anxiety, the Saudis themselves were pushing solar for power and desalinization and mulling over installing a FET. Think of it. The Saudi oil minister championing, championing solar as cheaper than oil. Saudi oil minister. <laughs> and keep in mind that this multifaceted supply crisis, pardon me, supply-side crisis in oil is gathering steam even as demand driven by China, India, etc. accelerates. China is now the biggest car market in the world, right? Um, so in the conventional energy sector, we have the stark reality of escalating prices, worsening geopolitical problems, and the prospect of other crises. At the same time, we're seeing renewable energy move into what appears to be a very robust takeoff phase. As noted, 86% of our primary energy is supplied by fossil fuels, but renewables are now a rapidly growing alternative. We can see that in, for example, the Renewable Global Status Report of 2010. It came out last year, September, which shows that the 30 billion American dollars invested in renewable energy capacity and manufacturing plants in, in 2004 had expanded to um, 150 billion 
American dollars by 2009. The report notes that this was the second year running in which more money was invested in new renewable energy capacity than new fossil fuel capacity, power generation capacity. We're in the middle of a revolution. Nicholas Stern, the author of the Stern Review of Climate Change, has lately been referring, referring to these developments as an industrial revolution. A similar perspective is seen in arguments by your own Ross Garneau, who adds that clean energy, especially renewables, is a massive opportunity for an Australia that is at present trapped in a focus on conventional energy, especially coal. Garneau points out in his 2011 Climate Change Review update, this is his September, he has a February uh, talk he gave somewhere. It's very interesting. Uh, in his update, that Australia has superlative potential resources in solar, geothermal, solar thermal, wind, and others. And the International Energy Agency now advocates heavy investment in renewables. A few years ago, it started hiring experts from outside the conventional energy field. And these experts have been bringing realism into the agency's reports. <laughs> the international, the IEA used to project wind uh, generation growth at 3% per year. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> you look at their older reports, there was just uh, a very clear bias. Anyway, uh, now that's uh, changed. Uh, bringing realism into their reports. The agency tells us that we need to invest just shy of U.S. $6 trillion uh, in uh, renewables between 2010 and 2035 in order to cope with rising energy demand, the peaking of conventional oil supplies, and the threat of runaway climate change. Their outlook, I might add, is quite conservative, being based on what credible experts regard as outdated figures concerning what levels of CO2 are dangerous. Many in the climate science community now argue that we need to hold CO2 to 350 parts per million rather than the 450 and even higher levels that frame the international debate on emissions targets and mechanisms. Um, the point is that we confront truly unprecedented crises on several fronts, but we also have the very promising opportunity of opting for, mo for more renewable energy. That optimistic argument only strengthens as the cost of renewables declines versus the increasing cost of power and fuels produced through conventional means. And remember, increasing even in coal. The cost of coal is even increasing. But still, it's very difficult to shift the energy economy. It's the biggest sector of the economy with an enormous vested interest in sunk costs in infrastructure. It also wields massive political influence in such countries as Australia, the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. The Canadian federal government is basically a tar sands, oil and gas government, uh, for example. Much of the international community has been looking forward to the enactment of a carbon price as a means to encourage a gradual transition towards low carbon energy production and consumption practices. But achieving robust uh, greenhouse gas emissions controls has been an incredibly difficult process that has gone on for decades now and is yet to produce significant outcomes. 
And even if carbon taxes are adopted globally, we're here, we can see from those that have already been implemented in Scandinavia and elsewhere that there is generally an emphasis on being gentle. The approach is one of imposing low burdens initially and over rather protracted periods of time, then increasing them at rates that do not significantly affect consumption and investment patterns. Now that's fine if there's plenty of time, but we do not appear to have plenty of time. Many of the most astute observers of the political economy of energy issues and climate change point out that we have perhaps a decade in which to shift away from conventional energy sources and towards sizable reductions in emissions. Let's go back to, uh, this is uh, Mr. Tanaka, the head of the IEA, saying this decade is crucial for effective policies. This decade is the crunch point. Um, let's leave aside the prospect of carbon capture and sequestration, which is yet to get a scalable project on the boards. And so even if feasible would take decades, we do not seem to have. We need to focus on getting robust policy on the energy input side of our problem as opposed to the output side of emissions. Um, that doesn't mean carbon trading and carbon taxes are pointless, just not as crucial, in my opinion. By the input side, I mean the provision of energy, especially the sources of energy that are used to generate electrical power. Power is the biggest and fastest growing sector in energy markets because of the electrification of just about everything, telephones, everything, including transport, increasingly. Shifting the energy sources used to provide electricity, or the input side, can be done by subsidies, quotas, taxation, uh, tax incentives, and other means. But the International Energy Agency, Deutsche Bank, the UN, and a host of other institutions and agencies have already determined that the feed-in tariff is the most effective and efficient means to foster renewable energy production. That's why 85 countries have adopted po the policy. That's why 75% of global solar and about 45% of global wind is supported by FITS. I noticed... I noted earlier that the cost of, now this is going to be hard to see, uh, you're going to have to trust me on this. <laughs> I noted earlier that the cost of renewables are declining. Grid parity is the holy grail, meaning parity on the electrical grid with conventional power sources, especially coal-fired power. In some areas, including Texas and the United States, wind power is already competitive with this baseload electricity. We can see that especially in terms of levelized costs, which compare construction, fuel, and operating costs over a few decades. The effective life of a power generating facility. You take, you know, renewables have massive upfront costs, but they have no fuel or limited fuel costs. Uh, some other kinds of technologies have min relatively, you know, minimal upfront construction, etc., costs, but they're fuel costs stretched over a few decades are, are big. And so how do you compare these things? Well, you compare them to a levelized cost. You take a period of time, you know, like 30, 40 years, and compare various generation technologies in their levelized cost per kilowatt hour. And it turns here, if you can see this, I can't even see it myself. Um, well, I can see it here. <laughs> anyway, if you look on the, on the, uh, the extreme right, those are, that's nuclear coal, natural gas, 
their levelized costs of production are higher than hydro, geothermal, landfill gas, wind, biomass, coal firing, and uh, nuclear is higher than, uh, than um, what do we got here? Uh, biomass, uh, biomass combustion. Uh, concentrating solar power, photovoltaics, uh, are, uh, remain higher on a levelized cost basis. These are all figures for the United States, by the way. Uh, and this is done by a series, you know, it's a huge uh, uh, network of institutional investors in uh, the United States. They organize about $10 trillion uh, worth of investment funds, and they're very serious about uh, where they should be investing, these pension funds and so forth. And so they're quite interested in what cost is likely to be characteristic of whatever given generation technology a decade from now, two decades from now, because they have to maintain their returns. Anyway, it's very interesting stuff. Please have a look at Ceres. They do really great work on water, uh, power, etc. Anyway. Per kilowatt uh, costs of uh, some renewables on a levelized cost basis are already cheaper than conventional power. And FITs include regular reductions of the tariff called digression so as to encourage continual cost reductions through technological advance and other means. You don't have that in conventional power. You have you know, a, a resource or constrained resource which is increasing in cost. So we don't have to ask people to bear any burden to save our world. The sustainable energy transition is increasingly about reducing costs. The big question is whether we use smart policy like the FED to accelerate that cost reduction and diffusion, as well as distribute the attendant economic opportunity as widely as possible. We don't want to reproduce our current unsustainable inequality in a transition to renewable energy. You don't want to have monopolized producers eat the entire opportunity. Um, in the Japanese case, there's been a, over a decade of very fraught politics concerning the FET. As an electrical market, Japan is big, the third largest after the U.S. and China. It's also cut up into what are essentially ten separate fiefs in which monopoly power utilities control their respective domains. They do this with the cooperation and support of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, or METI, as well as the compliance of other elements of the central government and of the local governments. Excuse me. The monopolized utilities recognize there is a need to move towards alternative sources of energy. Japan, among the developed countries, has the highest or among the highest dependencies on oil. <laughs> They're very, very concerned about what's going on in the Middle East. It's not funny, but anyway. Uh, so there's even greater sense of the need to have alternatives. Uh, but the monopolies don't control renewables and hence deride them as unrealistic, unreliable, and far too costly. Their preference is that alternative energy be more nuclear energy, which they do control, as well as more natural gas-fired power. They're especially committed to nuclear energy and have the support of the most important elements of the central government. Sorry, you can't see this one. Well, I've got the numbers on there. Right. Um, 
The current plans see nine more nuclear plants by 2020 and more than 14 by 2030, with nuclear power going from 10% of primary energy at present to 24% in 2030, with renewables lagging in growth from 6% to only 13% in 2030. Primary energy, again, is not electricity. It's, it's all the energy you use, right? Um, cooperating with utilities and METI, are the carbon-intensive industries, such as cement, steel, automobiles, and other businesses. They've cooperated on avoiding carbon taxes and other kinds of policies that would address the emissions side. Through such institutions as the Nippon Keidangren and other peak associations of business, they've lobbied successfully to remain reliant on voluntary agreements among themselves, which, of course, amount to very little. They've also worked at least tacitly with the utilities to keep the feed-in tariff and other mechanisms out of the policy nexus. All that was to change in 2009. The long decline of the LDP as the governing party reached its denouement with an imminent DPJ electoral win in the cards. As we entered 2009, it was clear to everyone that the LDP hegemony was falling apart and that there would be a DPJ government committed to change. This change centered on a shift away from spending on things, such as roads and bridges, to spending on people, uh, including higher allowances for children and so forth. But an additional element of the change promised by the Democrats was more renewable energy, as well as a robust feed-in tariff to foster it. Now, this prospect got the METI and the utilities quite concerned. So they cooperated in devising a preemptive feed-in tariff. The bureaucrats hastily put together a very restricted feed-in tariff, one that applied only to solar, guaranteed the market for only 10 years, the usual is 20 to 25 years, subsidizes only net power production from a household, meaning what you make what you produce after you've consumed power in your house. Uh, this is not the way to construct a feed-in tariff. The feed-in tariff should be gross. All the power produced by that panel on your roof or the windmill in your yard or whatever should be uh, fed into the, um, should be uh, paid for. Yeah, that helps diffuse it faster. Um, and had other limitations, quite a few. This was to be a housebroken feed-in tariff that would not upset the apple cart of centralized dominance, as well as the commitment to nuclear power as the main power alternative. In fact, they just made a concessionary policy move. In fact, the utilities had their own feed-in tariffs from years before, in-house feed-in tariffs that really did nothing. Um, uh, just so they could say that, well, we've got the policy, right? And so this was another, uh, um, at a slightly higher level, moving along with, with, uh, with the evolution of, of uh, power politics, and trying to keep ahead of the game by having a policy in place and yet being in control of it. Um, the bill was passed and implemented right at the last opportunity, almost quite literally right at the last opportunity. The law itself for the feed-in tariff came into effect on November 1st of 2009, just after 
the inauguration of the Democrats in September of the year. But then the going got rough. Once in power, the Democrats became subject to all kinds of lobbying from vested interests in the power sector. Not just executives and investors, the base of the LDP, um, but also the labor union base, which is where the DPJ is at. So now they've got additional uh, lobbying. None of these interests wanted to see a reduction in the previous LDP regime's commitment to nuclear power. Quite the contrary, they wanted more commitment because international markets had become even more competitive in this sector. The Japanese lost out to the Koreans and others on some power deals. So there was a huge push from last year uh, to get the state on board in what's called uh, the Old Japan movement to push uh, for nuclear uh, exports. And that obviously has its domestic implications. Um, they certainly didn't want the fit. A quota for renewables and a robust emissions target changing the complexion of the energy political economy they had enjoyed for so many years. So revision of the House broken fit went slowly. Committee politics quickly became dominated by personnel and ideas from the METI. The METI got right in there in that policy-making nexus and uh, got its people, its ideas in there. It appears that even the commitment to shift from a net to a gross fit was going to be axed through obscure rules. The, the DPJ had committed itself to a gross fit, but there was going to be some kind of fiddling. Uh, um, in fact, most of the rules on emissions and the renewables quota and so forth have been sacrificed or set aside as too costly, too intrusive, and so forth. You saw that announcement at Cancun uh, that Japan would not inscribe any target under the Kyoto Agreement after 2012. It just blew everybody's minds, but that was indicative of the politics that had developed in the wake of the DPJ electoral win. Um, but the fit appears to have created, now this is really interesting for me anyway, pardon me, I hope it is for you as well. But the fit appears to have created a constituency of interests that actually wanted expanded and worked together to make that happen. So there's something else coming here. You've got the party, you've got the Medi and its, its client groups, and suddenly you've got these, these other actors coming in and saying, no, we want this. Um, there's always been expertise within the Japanese policymaking community that sought a robust fit. Some of these actors were involved in the policymaking. Uh, I co-authored with uh, uh, one of the uh, people on the, the committee studying this. Uh, he's very, very gung-ho. Um, he's been lobbying for a fit for, uh, for over 10 years inside Japan. He wrote there a bill for the initial fit. Um, um, some, uh, uh, but in addition, once implemented in 2009, the FIT led to the rapid uptake of solar by homeowners. I mean, it's a very restricted, constrained FIT, but it still it was effective to an extent. Um, that means you have homeowners associations and so forth, as well as associated businesses of all kinds, acting as advocates of more of this kind of policy making. The policies created an opportunity for households to act as producers and for businesses to find new markets and solar panels. The promise of expanding the fit 
to include geothermal, wind, biomass, small hydro, and other electricity production is a major interest for the farming communities whose incomes are threatened by overseas competition. You know the TPP, I mean, they're all worried about this free trade agreement. Yeah, that's on the table. They've also, the farming communities also confronted uh, the potential for cuts in fiscal supports that they've hitherto enjoyed. Japanese budget is in terrible condition, uh, and so that's likely to go. Small businesses, local government, and other associations are also interested in these potentially expanding market opportunities. Opportunities that have hitherto been dominated by the monopolized utilities and their commitment to nuclear only. So we have seen this movement start to reshape the policy, and then the policy beginning to reshape the political economy. Um, Remember, this is the, the key thing here is what you had you had a policy that was applied only to solar, it had some initial effectiveness, and now now there are all these all these other groups saying, No, no, we want this. We want part of that market. So the house bitten fit is uh, biting back. I'd argue that we're seeing a potentially very profound development here. This policy has the capacity to act as a strong spur in the political economy. Householders are now organized as producers. I'm getting towards the end here, so please do listen to this part. <laughs> Householders are now organized as producers, receiving income as producers. Not as consumers, they're organized as producers. Lo uh, local communities are organized as power producers. Co-ops are organized as power producers. This is a new area of business in which all kinds of actors see the opportunity for additional stable income, as well as the ability to do something concrete and constructive about many of the new, nearly existential crises that we confront. The key appeal of the Fed might be that we're not asking people to be different. We're appealing to their direct self-interest in order to achieve the local and national interest and international interest in sustainable energy. The vested energy interests know this. They know the comprehensive, advanced fit. Comprehensive fit, I mean applying to all uh, renewable power options, not just solar or something, right? And with, uh, with the uh, lengthy guarantees and so forth. They know the comprehensive, advanced fit is their own worst enemy. It's why they fought against it so long, seeking to control it. The FIT splits the complex of interests in the carbon-intensive coalition, separating the utilities from other sectors. Remember, Japan has a lot of solar, etc. producers. Uh, they use steel, other metals. So you've got you know, this division of interest. Well, let's, you know, the utilities have been telling us this for so long. Well, you know, well, this is a market opportunity. We're all starving. This new organization of power producers may help alleviate the problem of plutocracy. Across the developed world, the power of traditional interests, such as labor unions and so forth, has declined in the face of highly concentrated and powerful industries in finance and energy. Organizing renewable energy producers represents a potentially very strong and progressive counter-trend this counter-trend may afford a means through which not only to bolster democratic governance by bringing more groups into decision-making as producers, 
It may also bolster democratic governments by alleviating to some extent the problem of worsening economic, uh, worsening inequality and concentrated political power. I'd like to uh, conclude there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.